Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hello, good morning, and welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray sitting in for Michael Reed. Michael will be back with you in the hot seat tomorrow morning. Okay, busy program between now and 11 a.m. And if you do want to get in touch, you can text or WhatsApp us on 086 1800 658. You can give us a call on 041 983 now, unpublished research by the Housing Commission says Ireland may need up to 62,000 homes built per year until 2050 to meet current demand. That's almost double the annual target in the government's master plan for this decade. The research, which was shared with the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, in November, indicates that Ireland requires between 42,000 and 62,000 homes every year. This is quite a figure bearing in mind that only 29,000 houses were completed last year. So the government has a problem on its hands. And added to this is the statement this morning that uh, the well, the industry that uh, relies heavily on uh, immigrants such as um, those who are in, a- in areas like software development or areas like uh, the-, the medical sector or indeed in engineering and so on are having difficulty attracting people into the country simply because there's no place for them to stay. Well, look to get some sort of an insight as to where we're at on the housing and homelessness situation. I'm joined on the line right now by uh, Peter McVerry of the Peter McVerry Trust. Uh, Peter, thanks very much for joining us on the programme. First of all, in terms of homelessness, how bad is the current situation? Uh, The current situation is at record levels. It's never, ever been so bad. We have a registered 11,600 people homeless, but that's probably only half... Uh, are less of the number. It doesn't include women and children in domestic refuges who can't uh, go home. It doesn't include 5,000 refugees who have been given permission to stay in Ireland uh, but can't find any accommodation. doesn't include people who are sofa surfing, are sleeping in tents, are sleeping rough. So the probable number is twice or maybe even three times that. But to put that in perspective, because it's only a number, and numbers sort of numb us, Last year, every single day, five single people and two families became homeless. That's the, the reality of it in, 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 in a, an understandable sort of way. And that situation is just intolerable. 
Well, no doubt the causes of homelessness are long and varied, but uh, what seems to be the common cause? Is it a case of, you know, somebody falling out with somebody in a family or somebody losing their job and unable to meet the mortgage? Or is there a particular common thread? Yes, uh, the main reason why people are becoming newly homeless these days is eviction from the private rented sector either because they can't afford to pay the rents anymore uh, or more likely the landlord comes along and says, I'm selling the, the, the premises, you're going to have to move out. That's the main cause of homelessness. Uh, secondary causes are breakdown in relationship, uh, but uh, the main cause is eviction from the private rented sector. So people who are homeless don't want to be housed in the private rented sector because their fear is that at some stage in the future, uh, they may become homeless once again. So they're looking for housing with security, which means social council housing, basically. This report that was published this morning by the Housing Commission uh, focuses uh, on the fact that there's been population growth. And this suggests that the massive influx of immigrants into this country has put uh, massive pressure on the whole area of housing provision. Would you see it that way? Uh, Partly, but I wouldn't want to put the... uh the immigrants into the country in uh, in in the main place. The the main reason for the increase is uh, demographic. It's uh, smaller numbers of uh, uh, of of it's it's people who are uh, in relationships that are, are breaking down. So more people need homes. Uh, it's due to the fact that. Uh, the demographic, more people are becoming 18 or over 18 or into their 20s, and they're looking to move out of the family home. Uh, so it's it's the demographics that have uh, that have uh, pushed this uh, number to, to 60,000. Not so much immigrants there, only a tiny minority uh, of the people who are actually uh, going to need housing. Okay, but I have to put the question to you, and I don't know if you find this, but um, if the state is housing immigrants, uh, that means then that there's less housing to go around, we'll say, for people born in this country who then end up homeless. Isn't that the case? It's certainly the case that there is pressure on housing. (laughs) The pressure on housing was there long before the the huge influx of immigrants that we've seen with Ukraine and uh, other nationalities in in recent uh, year or so. That pressure on housing was already there. Many of the uh, immigrants that are coming into the country are not being housed in places that that homeless people would be housed in. They're in direct provision. Uh, 5,000 of them, as I say, are still in direct provision because they can't find a home (laughs) to to move into. Uh, They are being housed, the Ukrainians are being housed in empty uh, commercial buildings. They're still being, were up to recently being housed in tents. Uh, so it's not a, it's not quite a, a simple quid pro quo that the immigrants are taking up housing that uh, Irish-born people should be using. But undoubtedly, there is huge pressure in the housing system, regardless of the immigrants, and the immigrants certainly do uh, make that pressure a, that little bit uh, greater.
Now, you mentioned earlier on that a large number of landlords are leaving the sector and one of the reasons landlords are leaving the sector is because the the taxes they have to pay make it unattractive for them to, if you like, hold on to uh, what is in many cases uh, a second house. Many people buy a house with the intention of renting it out so that by the time the mortgage is paid off, they will have some sort of an income that will be a nice little boost to their pension. Um, Have you found from your discussions with people in government that this is an area that badly needs to be overhauled? Well, certainly I've called for a reduction in rental, in in taxation of rental income for landlords. I have called for that, but I don't think that's the primary reason why they're leaving the sector. I think the primary reason they're leaving the sector is that house prices now are reaching their peak and landlords are cashing in on their asset. They want to sell the house while the prices are high and not wait until cost of price of housing drops. I think that's the primary reason. Remember, 10 years ago, rents were only half of what they are now. And landlords weren't complaining. <laughs> now rents are at an absolutely outrageous level. Uh, so I don't see that that, uh, that landlords are complaining about the uh, about the, uh, the, the, the the tax that they're paying. Of course, some landlords are in financial difficulties. I absolutely accept that. Some landlords are finding it very difficult to uh, to pay the taxes. Uh, and my uh, proposal would be that if landlords reduce the rent for their tenants by 30% and the government reduced the tax on rental income for landlords by 50%, that's a win-win situation for everybody. Well, obviously you've made that point uh, to government. Do you think government is listening? I think they think that would be very expensive. I think that was the initial response I got from government, that this could be extremely expensive. Uh, but I think it's, uh, it's, we've got to think outside the box. It's no use tinkering around with the system. Tinkering around with the system is not going to solve this housing crisis. We've got to think outside the box, and we've got to bring imaginative and creative solutions uh, to, the, to the problem. One of the solutions is the Kenny Report, and I keep coming back to this. This was published back in the 1970s, if I recall. 50 years ago, Kenny Report recommended, without going into details, recommended controlling the price of building land. The cost of the land on which a house is built is often one-third of the cost of the final cost of the house. If you introduce the cost of the Kenny Report, a 450,000 house uh, at the moment would be reduced to 300,000. It would make houses far more affordable. Uh, but every time you mention this, <laughs> you, you get a blank stare back. It's not even discussed. It's not even... Uh, it's, I, I fail to understand why uh, governments cannot uh, at least discuss the Kenny report uh, and, and look at ways of, of implementing it. Isn't one of the problems that uh, some TDs are landowners themselves and uh, for obvious reasons that if their land uh, was to be put on the market for housing, they want the maximum price and that's where part of the problem lies? It it may be. I don't know uh, whether how many TDs own land that would be uh, suitable for housing, but I think... uh, there should be public pressure on the government to at least look at the Kenny report uh, and see if it can and how it can be implemented. One of the objections by government is that it's contrary to the right to private property in the Constitution 
to control the price of building land. But the, the judge, Judge Kenny, who was chairing the Kenny report, he was a high court judge. He didn't think it was contrary to the Constitution. And even if it was found to be contrary to the Constitution, let's go and change the Constitution and bring it in. We need to bring in that Kenny report. We'd make housing far more affordable to far more people. Okay, I, I mean, we could go on about the issue then of negative equity. So if that scenario was to kick in, but uh, we're going to have to leave it there uh, because we have other people to talk to. But no doubt this is an issue that's going to rumble on and on and on in the months and years to come. Okay, more to come on the programme. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. This is Ken Murray sitting in for Michael Reed. Michael will be back with you tomorrow. And as I say, if you want to get in touch, you can call us on 0419832000 or you can text or WhatsApp us on 86 658 Okay, we're staying with that story that I just discussed there with Peter McVerry that uh, the Housing Commission is saying that Ireland may need up to 62,000 homes built per year until 2050 to meet current demand. This is obviously... Um, a very uh, adventurous uh, proposal, bearing in mind that last year I think 29,000 houses were built and it's still not enough. Uh, one man who would certainly have a view on that is Owen O'Brien, who is the Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest and his party spokesperson on housing. I know, Owen, you will just say, well, you know, uh, the government is failing miserably in relation to house provision. But uh, let me put the question to you. If you were the Minister for Housing tomorrow and Mary Lou MacDonald was the Taoiseach and you had, as they say, the levers of power in your hands, what would you do to increase housing supply? Well, the first thing, of course, is is you need an objective assessment of the number of homes that are actually needed. Uh, and one of the fundamental flaws of the government's housing plan uh, was the targets that are underpinning it. And that's not just the macro target of 33,000 new homes a year, but within that, the social and affordable targets were always too low. In fact, they were politically, politically massaged, in my view, and we've said that for many years. Thankfully, the Housing Commission are doing independent research, uh, and while the 62,000 is the upper figure, they're saying somewhere between 40 and 60. Uh, they're providing a range over a, a period of time. To answer your question specifically, We've argued that the state, first of all, needs a target of 20,000 public homes, social, affordable rental and affordable purchase. Uh, And we've published detailed proposals as to how we believe those homes could be delivered and delivered uh, uh, faster than the current government rate. For example, we have tens of thousands of vacant homes across the state. uh, And if local authorities were given money in advance uh, alongside significant targets, we believe they could acquire, refurbish uh, and either rent out or sell many of those vacant Likewise, we have a lot of companies, uh, both public and private, who are developing new building technologies that can provide uh, off-site manufacture of high-quality homes in shorter periods of time. The problem is there isn't a special framework agreement for tendering and procuring those, uh, and we've made that proposal as well. But also, local authorities need to be given more funding and higher targets to deliver uh, uh, those social affordable new bills. Uh, uh, and in order for them to do that more quickly, a lot of the red tape that is imposed on our local authorities needs to be cut back. In fact, Owen Burke Kennedy, uh, the business editor of the Irish Times, has a very good analysis piece highlighting the insane levels of bureaucracy that are imposed on our local authorities. So it's about vacants, it's about new building technologies, it's about cutting the red tape, and ultimately it's about greater capital funding and more ambitious targets. That's only the public housing side, because obviously we have to also work with the private sector 
for them to deliver uh, private homes to rent and buy at more moderated prices as well. But the one thing the state can absolutely control is public housing output, social, affordable rental and affordable purchase. Uh, And that's what we think the government is failing most to do currently. Isn't one of the big problems, Owen, that when the economic crash happened in 2008, that in the subsequent three or four years, something like, I think it was about 120,000 tradespeople left the country, the electricians, the carpenters, the block layers, the roofers, the tilers, the plasterers, they all went to Canada and Australia. There's currently a scarcity of tradespeople and that this is slowing up completions. Uh, is it time for the government to do something to either attract these tradespeople back or make going into a profession such as being an electrician or a carpenter uh, more incentivized? Well, first of all, it, it, it's not the case um, that we couldn't increase public housing output because of a lack of labour supply. Uh, uh, there are labour supply challenges, absolutely. There's a story again in one of the newspapers this morning about uh, a, a fall off last year in the number of apprenticeship registrations. Um, but if you talk to the Art Home Builders Association, for example, they represent kind of medium-sized builder developers. They'll actually tell you there is extra capacity for house building in the sector at the moment. Uh, it's also important to stress that we have too many builders building the wrong kinds of things. In Dublin, for example, a lot of apart hotels and co-living in other parts of the country data centres. Uh, and the reason why they're building those things is because the government is giving the wrong kinds of tax incentives uh, leading to the wrong kinds of development. So, yes, we need to strengthen and improve our apprenticeships. Yes, we need to ensure uh, that people working, particularly in the wet trades, uh, aren't forced into low-paid kind of bogus subcontracting uh, and are instead in proper PIA employment. Likewise, with the, the new building technologies, a lot of those technologies don't require outdoor work on sites. It's factory-based employment. Some of it is very highly skilled as well. So, yes, I think government needs to do more with apprenticeships, terms and conditions for construction sector professionals. Uh, and new building technologies and employment opportunities. But it is simply not the case that we couldn't be delivering more homes, and particularly more social and crucially affordable homes, within the existing labour market. In fact, according to government, uh, there's been an increase in 20,000 construction sector uh, uh, workers in the last number of years. And keep in mind, workers follow the money. So if there are good quality, well-paid jobs uh, in construction, and particularly public sector-led construction, uh, that will generate employment in and of itself. So we can do more with what we have, but as we move over the next five to ten years, absolutely we have to increase the size of that sector, and that is about key areas of investment and, and uh, uh, crucially, making sure that the work that people do pays for them to be able to live uh, good quality lives here at home. Okay, let me put a question to you that I put to Peter McVerry just before we came to you, and it relates to this uh, statement this morning that population growth uh, seems to be a a very significant factor in leading to a situation where demand is greater than supply. Something like 120,000 people came into this country last year and we only built 29,000 houses last year. Is it time to put a halt on immigration until demand is matched by supply and then restart the immigration programme then? So again, it's important that we have a kind of a fact-based discussion on on this. So first of all, we're inside the European Union and there's free movement within the European Union, so you can't stop people travelling in and out of the European Union. And if we were to try and do that, it would have an even more negative impact on us because we avail of that free movement well, within the can, EU. Can I stop you there? Okay, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll come to each section of it, but it's important just we, we take it step by step. The second thing is, a lot of the inward uh, uh, migration last year was people from the war in Ukraine, uh, and they're under temporary protection orders. 
and there has been an increase in people from outside the European Union applying for international protection. Those people aren't in the main in the mainstream housing system. Uh, they're in temporary emergency accommodation. They're in hotels. They're in communal buildings or or in uh, uh, shared accommodation. And therefore, as it stands, those people aren't putting any additional pressure on our housing system. Uh, the problem with our housing system, first of all, is we have ten years of pent up demand. Uh, uh, where supply didn't meet kind of new household formation within our own population. Uh, uh, and uh, as great levels of new household formation and returning Irish come back, that's a real challenge. Uh, I'm firmly of the view uh, that, uh, uh, and again, Owen Burke Kennedy in the Irish Times make this point today, uh, we have the money, <clears throat> we have the public land, uh, and we have workers to accelerate the delivery of high-quality permanent homes, both for the people who are currently living here uh, and the new households that will be formed as well as in migration from within the European Union because of economic growth and returning Irish migrants. So the straight answer to your question is no, I don't think you need to put a halt uh, uh, to people coming into the country, either those who have rights to permanent housing or those who are being accommodated temporarily. I think what we need is a better government and a better plan, both to tackle the housing and homelessness crisis and also to ensure that those people who are seeking uh, protection from war or persecution have decent quality uh, uh, temporary accommodation in the state uh, while we're providing them with refugees. Okay, well just let me just make the point, and I I was about to interrupt you there earlier on, Uh, only this weekend, and I was reading this last night before I went to bed, Denmark has decided to put a halt on immigration because of issues over housing, that too many people are coming into the country and they don't have enough houses. Sweden has already put a ban on immigration because not only of housing supply but other social problems. So the point being is it can be done if the will is there. But to move on, and can I make this point? Of course, it, it can be done in the sense that uh, anything can be done. But uh, if you go back to what we talked about a moment ago in terms of construction, uh, or if you look around another you know, a series of areas of our economy, we're almost at full employment. We have significant labour shortages in a range of areas, uh, uh, in some in healthcare, in some in construction, some in other areas. Uh, and therefore, uh, uh, it's really important for us to be clear our problem is not that the state could not provide accommodation either for its resident population or those seeking international protection. Our problem is we have a government that cannot organise anything properly. Uh, and it's not just our housing system, it's health, it's childcare, it's other areas. So I'm absolutely of the belief, like we have almost 100,000 plus uh, vacant homes across the state. Government had a 5 billion euro surplus last year. There is very, very significant tracts of public land that is currently not being utilised. If government actually had the will uh, and the ambition to tackle the housing and homelessness crisis over a number of years, they could do that. And we could ensure that those people who are fleeing war and persecution, particularly in, in Ukraine, could get a decent quality uh, of emergency accommodation while they're seeking refuge here. Okay. Those things are possible. You're right, they're not being done, but that's a political okay. failure. And therefore, I actually think what we need to do is change the government okay, just, uh, rather just, than just, uh, change the entry rules into the state. Just one final question, Owen. Um, basically, this report this morning is effectively saying that if we don't build 60,000 house, 60, houses per year until 2050, uh, it will prevent the growth of the Irish economy. What are the implications if we can't meet, meet these targets for the Irish economy? Yeah, and be very clear that the report isn't saying we need 60,000 homes next year. The report is providing a range saying over the next decade, we're going to need between 40 and 60,000 a year. Uh, And I think what that means is right now, uh, uh, next year, the year after, the level of need is somewhere around 40 to 45,000. 
Uh, you're absolutely right. Employers have been saying for a very significant uh, period of time uh, uh, that uh, uh, the failure of the state to ensure we have an adequate supply of housing, and particularly affordable housing for working people, is creating difficulties. For example, uh, if you go around Dublin or some of our other large, large cities, school teachers uh, can't afford to live in the communities in which there are uh, 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 jobs available in schools. Employers are telling us that they can't get staff international investment and the idea are telling us uh, would be negatively impacted. So it is a real problem, but this isn't new uh, information. We have known this for many years. And that's why what is needed more than anything else okay. is a complete change of approach by government, greater ambition, greater investment, uh, higher targets and better delivery, particularly right. of affordable homes at prices that working people can afford. Okay, Owen, we're going to have to leave it there. That's the Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest and his party spokesperson on housing, Owen O'Brien. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Sarah was in touch regarding our discussion there on the housing shortage. Sarah says that the IBEX survey findings are not remotely surprising. The house prices here are ludicrous and the rent levels are not any better. So why would any new talent be enticed to move to Ireland? People are continually being priced out of the market. Margaret was in touch. She says that she doesn't know where the government expect to find construction workers to build all these necessary houses. We don't have enough building as it is to meet our targets. So how are we supposed to meet these new targets being laid down by the government? Now, the Council of Europe's expert group on violence against women will visit Ireland as one woman per week has died in violent circumstances so far this week. The uh, the Grievio Committee visiting Ireland will examine Ireland's implementation of the Istanbul Convention on violence against women as it tours the country meeting survivors of violence, government bodies and NGOs. Nolene Blackwell is a familiar voice on this programme. She's the CEO of the Dublin Race Rape Crisis Centre and uh, she can tell us that there's been a rise in the number of people attending sexual assault treatment units in this country. First of all, Nolene, how bad is the current situation? Ken, I think I think either I heard you wrong or you might have said just something slightly inaccurate on the number of women killed. It's one a month, not one a week. So just like it's uh, while it's still awful, um, it is uh, it, it, it's it's just to correct that. So well, uh, I, eleven I'm, just or let me stop you there. Women let me stop you there, Nolene. Just, uh, I'm quoting Laura Linet in today's Irish Independent, okay. and yeah. she's saying that one woman per week has died in violent circumstances so far this year so I think it's oh yeah this, yeah, this yeah, year just, just so there's no, uh, there's yeah, no yeah. misunderstanding oh yeah there. yeah yeah okay alright sorry about that I picked you up wrong then in the way anyway so how bad is the problem and and how serious is it so one of the things that I suppose we are seeing today and this week when this uh, specialist committee is coming from the Council of Europe to talk to the Irish government and to others as well in this area is it, 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 it allows a, a spotlight to be shone on the question of what was, until very recently, a very hidden problem of domestic violence, sexual violence, intimate violence, violence that happened in in silent places and where, to be truthful, our society didn't want to hear about it. So one of the things we are really lacking in this area is a good base figure.
figures. So if we knew sort of objectively what the situation was like five or ten years ago, we would be able to say the situation is getting better or worse. But actually the statistics we have are very poor indeed. So one of two things could be happening. In the context of increasing reporting, so more people are reporting to sexual assault treatment units, more people are reporting to the guards, more people are reporting and disclosing to the National 24-Hour Sexual Violence Helpline, which we run, a confidential helpline, every single year. And that we, we guess, but that's all we can do, is a combination of people who are suffering terrible abuse and it may be getting worse and also people who before had no one to tell because there was no one interested in it. They didn't feel they'd be believed if they went to the guards. They didn't feel that they would get any remedy if they went and reported it to a sexual assault treatment unit and often they didn't even know that they could report it to us. So it's probably a combination of an increased recognition by people of all genders, but actually mostly women, that sexual violence and domestic violence are never, ever the fault of the person who experiences it and that they are not responsible for it in any way and that they can report it and get help and if they want to they can take it to the justice system as well. well. Okay well are you getting any sense that the number of sexual assaults is up or is it a case of women now are just more confident about going to report the actual assault on them? I think it's I think it's a bit of both. You see, um, I think there's a real possibility that um, that as I suppose as as there are so. For instance, uh, right now, post COVID, we noticed an, an immediate increase in the number of people reporting sexual assaults to us on the helpline. Now they don't have to report it to the guards after that. This is just on the helpline. That's because people were going out more, and and there is a, a real worry. Uh, that younger people are um, more sexually active than they were and that they are uh, suffering sexual violence and that they are reporting it more. So there is a danger that, in fact, the range of people being assaulted is increasing. But undoubtedly, there is also that as well, that people are realising they don't have to put up with it without getting help for themselves, without getting assistance. You know, like the sexual assault treatments units, for instance, like they are there, to, yes, to collect evidence if, if Gardaí are investigating a case sure. um, and, and evidence is needed, but they're also there to give people, you know, treatment in case uh, against maybe getting some sort of disease or harm out sure. of a sexual encounter. So there is that sense in which people are recognising it is, it is something that there is help out there for right, right, and, no, and going for it. Let me ask you this question. Um, in what 2022 last year there was a public awareness campaign a lot of uh, what are called um, information broadcasts on television about the new law in relation to coercive control yeah. um, is this if you like helping or encouraging more women to come forward in other words is the new public awareness campaign on coercive control delivering the desired result yeah, so undoubt, undoubtedly it is. I mean, the thing is, of course, coercive control is only a crime in Ireland since 2019. 
So the reality was, even if you knew it was happening to you before, going to the Gardaí wasn't going to be much use because they couldn't prosecute it very well. Now they can prosecute it. So the the campaign that was there about coercive control and the campaign that was there that was saying to share someone else's intimate image was a wrong thing to do as well and a criminal offence. Both of those had the effect of making a lot of people aware of things they genuinely never knew were considered wrong in the eyes of the state before. So they are helping. So too is it helping that the guards are better equipped and they're better at hearing um, the cases that come into them. You know, there was... Okay kind of a feeling before that they, they would be disregarded, whereas oh, oh. now the guards are being better trained in that area. Yeah, just just uh, one final question, well, certainly two final questions before I let you go. I've been reading yeah. elsewhere that some women show up at refuge centres and there aren't enough beds. Yes. Is this compounding the problem? Yeah, no, that, that again, that's just one of the problems that we've had for a very long time and that hasn't been spoken about. Whereas now it's absolutely recognised that for people who are fleeing, uh, sometimes the children, sometimes on their own, the risk of imminent violence, there aren't enough beds available. Uh, the Minister for Justice has promised to double the number of refuge spaces and that will only bring us up to a minimum figure that we should have in this country based on the number of people we have in the country. I mean, ultimately, Ken, we are hoping for a society where the person who has to leave uh, the house, who has to leave the home, is the person who's carrying out the harm. But in the meantime, we'll always have a need for refuges and those safe spaces, just there aren't enough of them there at the moment. Um, And sometimes they're totally full. Okay, just finally, uh, Nolene, very briefly, uh, if there's anybody listening to this programme that's in a violent relation uh, relationship and doesn't know what to do, what advice would you give them? So I would say the very... So first of all, if somebody is in immediate danger of anything or other, just dial 999 and get on to the Gardaí. Then there are confidential, non-judgmental helplines where you can just talk about what the matter is. And so if it's a question of sexual violence, you would call our helpline and the number there is 1-800-77-88-88. It's there 24 hours a day, every day of the week. There's a text service with it now and a web chat service. It's in other languages if English isn't your first language. But it's a good start and we can signpost people right. on to other support. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, sound advice from Nolene Blackwell there, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Don't forget, if you do want to get in touch, you can text or WhatsApp us on 086 1800 658 or give us a call on 041 Eric was in touch regarding housing. He says the Taoiseach stated in the Dáil that many of our new residents from the Ukraine are likely to remain here. So where are the houses going to come from to offer them a permanent residence when we already have so many on the housing waiting lists? It's impossible to see how we can manage to house everyone. Okay, moving on and uh, back to local matters and plans for a major extension to Meath County Council's HQ at uh, Bevinda House in Navan to provide a new council chamber and additional office accommodation are currently on public display. 
Now, the new council chamber is the main feature of the design and the 3,220 square metres, two and three-storey extension will also include ancillary councillor office space, office space for 155 additional staff and a garden courtyard area. The estimated cost of the project is, wait for this, €21 million. One person who has an opinion on this is uh, Emer Tobin, who is a councillor in Meath County Council and uh, joins me on the line right now. Um, I should point out, Emer, that we've been in touch with Meath County Council and so far nobody has got back in touch. So I have to ask you these questions as if uh, I sound objective and indeed uh, that it's all a good idea. I presume you wouldn't object to the fact that the council is building on additional space to house 155 additional staff. What's wrong with that? Good morning, Ken, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to discuss this, this issue. Um, well, look, there's, there's, it, it's a fine building. Everybody, when they would have heard that Meath Council was buying the building, said, wow, that's, that's going to be a great uh, space for, for Meath County Council staff. But the point is now we have blended working trial starting next week for um, nearly 380 Meath County Council staff. So basically that means blended working is going to kick in for six months to see is it uh, workable. And uh, a large number of, of the council staff have taken up, um, have, well, they applied for it and have taken up the option to do it. So this is going to free up a huge amount of office space because these staff members are going to be able to do two days from home, three days in the office. And the idea is that hot desking will replace the dedicated workspaces for uh, office members or office staff. So really, I can't see the, the need for extra staff to be built on to, to the existing building. Because as we know, the whole area of blended working is has to, you know, gained huge popularity. There's greater numbers looking to do it. And, uh, you know, there's obviously legislation coming down the line where people will have a right to request the option to work remotely. So bearing all this in mind, there is definitely going to be less need for office space uh, everywhere in the country as well as in our own county. I should add, by the way, that just as I speak, we got a, a reply from Meath County Council and all it simply says, and it was uh, sent to our producer, Maggie Maguire, the council cannot comment on live planning applications. So that's the Meath County Council response on this. But um, one would ask the question, uh, Emer, that if people in Meath elect councillors to Meath County Council, do you people have any say or no say whatsoever when it comes to the way the council spends money on projects? like this? Well, it is true, Ken. We don't have a say on this matter. This application has gone directly from the council to onboard Planola. It is a live uh, application. Now, the date for um, submissions from the public actually closed last Wednesday, so people cannot have a say on it. But getting back to our ability to influence this decision, we don't have a vote on it because this um, application is in an area, a special area of conservation. So that's why it's gone straight to onboard Planola. But, you know, this is a, it's, you mentioned 21 million. The cost is expected to be between 21 million and 26 million. So we don't know where the cost would finally end. It would be up as high as 26 million. But you know yourself, there's an awful lot of problems in this county. 4,000 people on waiting lists. This money would build an awful lot of houses. It would provide a lot of social and affordable houses. 
it's just seems like a bit of a white elephant project. And would fix a lot of potholes in Meath as well. <laughs> there's no doubt, there's no doubt. I experienced a few this morning on the school run, I can tell you where I live. But seriously, you know, there's an awful lot of people grappling with the cost of living crisis. That's number one. We have, you know, a 12,000 strong population in Johnstown. For years have been looking for community amenities. Nothing has ever been built out there. And there on their doorstep, they see a, a planning application sign outside the Vinda house looking to extend their beautiful building to add more council uh, office space and a new chamber. And the thing is, we have a council chamber on Railway Street and there's no doubt it is a little bit cosy, but the fact that we only use it once a month, it's perfectly workable in, in my opinion. And like when this plan came out and we heard the amount of money that was involved, Ainsley just could not stand by and just say, oh, yeah, let's go with this. We have to put our opinion out there. This money could be used on so many other areas that would enhance people's lives. This project is obviously going to make the working lives of, of me County Council staff members much better. And there's no doubt we'd all love bigger and brighter offices. But it just doesn't seem like the wisest way to spend this kind of money, considering we're in a cost of living crisis. Yeah, but if somebody wants to build a shopping centre or a housing estate or whatever, uh, they have to go through all sorts of hoops to get permission. And it seems Meath County Council is going to go ahead with this. Uh, I can't see too many members of the public complaining um, about offices being built as extensions up at Bouvinda House, which is a little bit off that main road there uh, in Johnstown. Uh, and, and, and it comes back to what I said in my previous question. Doesn't it say something maybe uh, poor about the way the councillors uh, conduct their business at Meath County Council that you can't keep tabs on the council. It seems the council can do whatever they want and the very reason you people were elected, you can't, if you like, whip them into order, if you'll pardon the phrase. Well, look, there's no doubt our area of influence is... Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Is, is small. You know, we can certainly vote on, on Part 8 applications, but on an application like this, we can put our ideas forward, we can, we can you know, express our opposition, but really we, we wouldn't have huge um, impact on their decision. If it's something they feel they want, they can go ahead with it. But as I say, we have a chamber on, on Railway Street. Although it's cosy, it, it certainly fits the bill. We only meet once a week. We don't need, you know, this like I saw plans. There's no. I saw plans for the for the council chamber. Ken, it looks amazing. There's absolutely no doubt. It it would be fabulous in the sense of from an architectural point of view, but from a practical uh, point of view, a, a room that's only going to be used once a month does not is not needed now. We're in a desperately tough time, and the you know the the largesse of this plan does not sit well with so many people. You know, the money could be put to better uses. This is taxpayers' money at the end of the day. We should be working to use this money in a far more um, productive way. This is not going to make people's lives better or it's not going to help people. This Actually, if we if we actually work out the 26 million, that would build 74 houses. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a huge amount of houses, but that's an awful lot of people's lives that are improved and for children, like, I mean, I just don't even want to start talking about the homelessness and the cost of that problem currently on the children and on the stressed out parents. You know, the human cost of that is phenomenal. And then we hear a local uh, housing authority looking to extend office space and the amount of money, it it, it grates with an awful lot of people. People are just thinking it's not necessary right now. Let me ask you this question. Are, are you the only one making noise about this or are other councillors up in arms about the fact that 21 to 26 million is going to be spent on extending and modernising the Meath County Council offices at a time when there are lots of boarded up buildings in the county of Meath that could be used for housing and as I mentioned earlier on there's no end to the country lanes in Meath that are riddled with potholes. Um, I'm sure there there are many councillors, Ken, that that have reservations, and I'm sure there's people who think this does not send out a good, you know, message to the public about prioritisation of 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 where money goes. Um, but I, you know, I'm not going to speak on anybody else's behalf. You know, but there, certainly there's an awful lot of people very unhappy with how money is spent in this county from a councillor's point of view. That there's prioritisation seems weak in some areas and there's, there's, you know, but, you know, it is difficult. It is difficult sometimes for councillors to go against the council. You know, just to be clear on that, um, we all have to work together. There is a certain element of, you know, of if, if I back you on this, will you back me on that? So, there's, it isn't easy to be seen to oppose the council. And, okay. and I, you know, I find it difficult at times sometimes to oppose the council. But I feel an issue as important on this that the greater good will be served by calling this out. It's not something, you know, that needs okay. to have this level of funding spent on. Sure, sure. Just, just, just one final question, Um Emer, apart from you coming on LMFM and giving a few quotes to the Meath Chronicle, is this now the end of the matter or uh, have you plans to make more noise about this? Well, I, I would have done a certain amount of work about it on social media. Um, 
I, I, I sent in a submission obviously to on board Planola last week um, expressing my opposition and that this money should go elsewhere um, to the you know to the more needy causes um, I also asked the council you know if, if they're really I won't say hell bent but if they really want to push ahead on this uh, why don't they set off the chamber on Railway Street and use the, you know, the money, the revenue generated from that to cover some of the cost? Um, I had, didn't get an answer on that, but you know, hopefully that could be something that m- that might be considered. And uh, I also want to see how much would it cost to make the chamber building on Railway Street IT ready so that meetings could be accessed remotely. Because right. maybe that's one of the reasons that they're, they're pushing for, for the, the, the bigger office space and extension. But, you know, the blended learning thing is something I feel strongly about. If there's more people going to be working remotely, we don't need more office space. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, that seems to make sense. We're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, Councillor Emer Tobin uh, talking to us about a plan by Meath County Council to spend somewhere in the region of 21, 22 million on uh, new office staff at a time when there will actually be less people working in the building and I should point out that Meath County Council were in touch and they say the council cannot comment on live planning applications. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now it's hard to believe that it's almost 20 years since the ban on smoking in the workplace was introduced. It was March 29th, 2004. Publicans were kicking up hell at the time saying all their pubs would close down, it would destroy rural Ireland and the social scene would die a death in this country and of course it never happened. But Ireland was leading the way on this and many other countries have followed. But now a drive is underway to secure something like 9,165 signatures in this country which will be part of a wider petition campaign to achieve one million signatures under what's called the European Citizens Initiative. This was something we voted for in the Lisbon Treaty back in 2009, which means that if a million signatures can be guaranteed uh, on a particular issue, the European Commission will give it consideration. Well, a move, as I say, is on to make a tobacco-free Europe within the next uh, five to ten years. One man who's leading the drive in this country is Professor Luke Clancy. He's the Director General of the Tobacco Free Research Institute of Ireland and he joins me on the line right now. Uh, Professor Clancy, first of all, what's behind this initiative? Good morning, Fred. As you suggest, this is um, an initiative by the people, a citizens initiative as it's called. Not very often used, but a very important mechanism where the people can tell the executive, as it were, what they would like to happen. And uh, to get this initiative going, you have to apply to the commission and they've got to go through it and see that it's compatible with what they're doing. And then if it's accepted, they, uh, you as a citizen and as a group of citizens and organisations have, as you suggested, to collect a number of signatures. Now, the, the number for Ireland is, as you said, but the need at a European level is one million and that has to be done within one year. So it's a very good mechanism as well for getting the message out there. So this this uh, message is that we would like to have a tobacco for Europe and the, how to get at that uh, according to this is to follow the uh, New Zealand people and say that you won't allow children who are born Uh, after 2010 
to buy cigarettes, so which means they'd never have access to cigarettes, so they would never be addicted or have to give them up or anything. And this would be a, a great mechanism. The other big aim of it is to try and clean up the environment. You know, there's four and a half trillion butts thrown away uh, each year in the world. And this uh, is a huge cause of pollution and acetate getting into the systems and causing uh, damage to citizens. So it's a win-win as it were. It would stop the people, it would bring this to everybody's notice, and it would help the environment. Okay, well, you're looking for a million signatures across Europe, and the quota for Ireland is 9,165. If you don't get the one million signatures, I think, is it, uh, you have 365 days uh, to get the one million uh, signatures, that if you don't get them, then your campaign will be seen as a failure. Would it not be logical to sort of bypass the, the signature or the petition process and lobby the powers that be in the European Commission uh, otherwise? Well, I think uh, there is competence at European level, but there's also member states involved here. And this is, if you go directly to uh, the Commission, for instance, they'll say, well, is there any support for this? Who says we should do it? But if a million European citizens say to the Commission, this is something we want you to take action on, then they are, it's a very strong message, but also it's part, as you suggest, of the relationship with the Commission. They have promised that if a million people in Europe want something, they'll do something about it. And uh, that's, it gives it great power and it gives an opportunity to the people to say, because we often see uh, government initiatives and uh, they say, oh, yeah, but it'll do this, as you suggest there, to do terrible damage to X, Y, and Z. But if this comes from the people, then they've got over that part already. And then it becomes uh, part of the duty of the Commission to make sure that something happens about it. OK, well, you're famous for being involved with ASH, which was Action on Smoking and Health. And I was making the point there in my introduction that we introduced the ban on smoking in the workplace back in 2004. How have we been doing since then? I mean, have smoking rates dropped? Have uh, admissions to hospital for lung cancer dropped? What stats have emerged since 2004? Well, it has been a huge success. The first thing that happened was that you don't see smoke in pubs or anywhere else of a public order. So that when you walk in, you're not polluted by internal pollution. So we measured the level of pollution in pubs, etc., and it had fallen to near nothing. Even though at the time, as you said, the industry was saying it would ruin the world. But apart from that, it was also saying that much of the air pollution in pubs was due to cooking and wasn't due to cigarettes at all. Yet when this happened, even though there's an increase in food in pubs, the level of pollution fell dramatically. So that was the first success. Then, as you suggest, there's also a reduction in disease. We showed that uh, there was 3,000 less fewer admissions per year to hospitals, and we showed that the mortality from heart attacks fell. Now, part of that is not, that's not all due to uh, the smoke-free. There's also other things like better treatment for hypertension and better care when they do get to the hospital. And so that that's complex, but that fell as well. So we have a, an improvement in hospital admissions, in mortality. And one of the interesting things we found is most things that you do 
seem to benefit well off people because they have better access and they better take better care of it and so on. But this was something we found that socioeconomically was more helpful for poorer people. Now, I suspect that part of that is because the people who work in the service industries were exposed to smoke at their work and had no choice. And this fall that we saw was more, it, it was across the board, but it was more obvious in the poorer people and the lower um, paid people. So it was a huge thing because very often, as I say, interventions benefit those that are already well off. Okay, I'm reminded of that movie. I'm sure you you saw it more than once, uh, that movie called The Insider, which looked at the whole uh, tobacco delivery business in the USA. And I'm just wondering that if somebody like you and your counterparts uh, elsewhere across the EU are basically going to put the push on the EU Commission to make Europe smoke-free, aren't you up against very very strong lobbying from representatives of the tobacco industry who've got, you know, big uh, big checkbooks and very uh, qualified and talented uh, lawyers who will lobby the EU Commission about the socio-economic effects of making uh, Europe smoke-free, the job losses, the loss to the economy and so on. Isn't the, aren't these the type of things you're up against if you go down this road? Absolutely. But whether you go down this road or not, the tobacco industry's initiative and their their reason that is to make profits. So they want more people to be addicted. They want our children in particular to be addicted because they're the replacement. You know, one in two people who smoke die because of it. So if that's going to happen, they need replacements. So they got to get to our children and addict them. So they do everything in their power to stop this. And as you're suggesting, they, I think it's, it's a fact that the highest number of lobbyists for any organization or any industry is the tobacco industry in Europe. But that's why I think there's great power in the people coming and saying, this is not a between politicians or bureaucrats. This is about the people saying, we want this done. And if they do, they must sign on. And as you know, that's the important bit. This is a just a... Um, online signing and they must do it though it's not enough that they wish for it to happen it has okay. to I'll, be done i'll come and to the on i'll come to the online signing in just uh, just a minute or two but in terms of the campaign that your colleagues elsewhere across europe are undertaking i mean what are they doing to try and get the message out uh, about the fact that you want one million signatures you know are they are they getting on their local radio stations in the netherlands or italy and and pushing the point or you know are they just hoping that the whole of uh, europe will just log on to some website and they'll come across this by accident and hopefully by chance they'll get a million signatures. Uh, certainly not. You're, you're quite right. They're, they're doing all the things that we're doing, only they, uh, some of them are well resourced and are doing it better. However, they probably aren't on with you this morning, which is a great bonus to me and I'm delighted and thank you very much for it. But they have had press conferences where they've brought people together and announced this. We sent out a press release because we don't have any resource to assemble people. But they're doing that. They're going to the also to the health departments. In I was reading this morning, both in Poland and in Italy, 
the health ministries and the ministries for the environment have pledged their support and are going to back them and get it on all government thing. There's been no response from our government yet, but uh, there's time and we're hopeful that they too will get involved. But it needs the people and that's why it, this is ground up and that's why it's fantastic just, just, to be on yeah. local radio and I'm grateful for that. Sure, just just. Two questions before I let you go, uh, Professor Clancy. Uh, have you concerns about vaping? Youngsters are going into shops and buying these vaping devices which contain, in a lot of cases, nicotine. It hooks them onto nicotine. Uh, and before you know it, youngsters are then smoking cigarettes. I mean, what are your concerns about vaping? Well, we're very concerned about vaping. It's very prevalent. And what we, we've been researching this for years now. And what we have found is that increasingly the young people who start vaping have never smoked a cigarette. And as you suggest, they become addicted to nicotine. And we have found and shown that if they do become addicted to nicotine or if they do use vapes, that they're twice as likely to start smoking. Now, in other countries, they found it's even more likely, up to four times. But our figures are that it's more than twice as likely to start smoking. And that's why the vaping industry, even though there's a lot of independence, it's dominated by the tobacco industry, who see this as a way into our children and addict them. They say it's for adults, but in fact, we have found that it's very prevalent and something like 18% of the young kids of 16 years of age are regularly using e-cigarettes and we know that they are much more likely to smoke and and also in with regard to pollution there's a huge pollution element with e-cigarettes not only as minister smith has pointed out the loss of lithium etc which we need but the plastic itself is getting into the system and they're disposable there's no even single-use stuff, which are single-day, which are gone okay. the next day into the pollution. All right. Just one final question, Professor Clancy. If uh, somebody wants to sign this petition to do their bit for Ireland and Europe, where exactly should they go? Well, it's online. It's on the Commission, but it's also on all the websites of the health organisation. For instance, on our website, which is tri.ie, but it's on the Heart Foundation. It's on the Thoracic Society. It's on. It will be on the Cancer Society. So it's on all the health organisations. And I'm hoping that people like yourself will also help us get the message out. Yes, there. we will. We definitely will. We'll have it on the LMFM website as well. Okay, we leave it at that. And the best Thank of luck with that campaign. It's a very worthy and honourable campaign to rid Europe of tobacco in the next uh, 10 years or so. That's Professor Luke Clancy, Director General of the Tobacco Free Research Institute of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, regarding our discussion earlier on on housing targets, Liam was in touch to say, we haven't a hope in hell of getting on top of our housing targets in this country. The government are living in cloud cuckoo land with the targets they are putting out. Instead of focusing on building all the time, why is more not being done to renovate the thousands of empty houses, apartment blocks that are lying vacant all over the country? Surely that is a more realistic and achievable way of helping to free up accommodation. Mary was in touch. She says, it's all well and good for Owen O'Brien and Sinn Féin to talk about all the wonderful things they would do if they were in government, but how many of their proposals are actually attainable? It's all very easy to have all the answers when you are not the one charged with actually solving the problems. We're forever being told that Sinn Féin will wipe the boards at the next elections, so let's just wait and see what uh, they can deliver on their proposals if they make it into government next time. Okay, moving on, um, you may recall that the was a pretty 
horrific story uh, last month in Moneygall in Offaly where something like 50 lambs were killed as a result of an attack from a dog. It cost uh, farmer John Healy €10,000 in financial losses and the pictures on the Irish Farmers Journal website make pretty depressing viewing. This is a serious problem uh, in rural Ireland. One man who's been keeping an eye on this is Kevin Comiskey. He's the chairman of the IFA National Sheep Committee and he joins me on the line right now. Kevin, a working group on dog control has been established and it follows on as well uh, arising from the attack on the little boy down in County Wexford, a young man called Ali Leandro Missan, nine years of age, from Enniscorthy. As we know, he was attacked, and uh, the pictures of the attack he suffered made a pretty horrific viewing as well. What's happening in terms of dealing with this problem? Okay, good morning, Ken, and, and good morning to your listeners. Um, yes, it's the working group now, to my uh, knowledge, was set up <coughs> uh, last, <coughs> sorry, last, uh, the late in the, in the week there, last weekend, Thursday or Friday. Um, hopefully it'll come to some decision um, and get, get what we want. We and IFA are very clear, and I'm very clear what's needed. And uh, like the last listener said there, what the proposals we have is 100% attainable. It's, it's uh, microchipping. Every dog must be microchipped, bottom line. Every dog must be licensed and linked to the appropriate owner. A single national database put in place and also the sanctions put in place to re- reflect the horrendous damage that these dogs do on farms and indeed, as you mentioned, to the likes of that young, unfortunate poor boy. Horrific, horrific incident there. So it's, it's, uh, we're very clear. The working group has uh, seemingly set up. I don't think they should take long uh, getting around this and getting the, uh, what's needed into place. Most importantly, then, is enforcement and resources put in place for the enforcement. And when all that's put together, it should not take long. Um, the working group, fair enough to put it together, but it should take very little time. Wood meeting, two at the most, it should be sufficient. Well, all that sounds very good and honourable, but how do you deal, for example, with the problem of stray dogs? Well, uh, just about an hour ago, I had... Uh, a phone call from a man, a farmer, got a stray dog on his land this morning. He got the dog, he got him into his uh, trailer and he brought him to the vet and couldn't uh, know who the owner was because the dog wasn't microchipped. So the dogs have to be microchipped to link them into the licence and the appropriate owner. Well, you know and I know not everybody has a dog licence. People uh, buy dogs as pets. They don't think about getting a licence. Nobody knocks on the door and says, excuse me, but do you have a licence for your dog? Isn't that part of the problem? Of course. That is part of the big problem. Enforcement enforcement is a big issue. And that's where it is. People out, even walking their dogs, dog wardens has to be out there on the ground. Checking for dog licences, checking for microchipping. And it'll fall fall into play. When people hear that the, the dog warden is out, they'll say, oh, I must get a licence. Do you know what I mean? And it, it's the same with our animals. We have to have our animals all electronically tagged now. When we go to the vet to get a prescription for to get an injection for a sheep or a lamb or a calf, we have to give the tag number of that animal. And the exact same rule should be in play for when you go with your dog to get him treated, to get him vaccinated or her vaccinated, whatever, when you go to the vet, before the vet can administer anything or carry out any 
uh, exercise on that dog, that dog must be microchipped and must be licensed. And that would be a good way of enforcing it as well. Okay, I mean, there seems to have been a a pattern or a trend. Uh, I think I, I, I saw a story there... I think towards the end of last year about uh, a child being killed by a dog in England and there seems to be certain dogs that are more likely to attack children. Has the time come to ban certain species of dogs in this country? Certainly, that's something would have to be looked at and what they call the dangerous breeds, all these dangerous breeds has to be on muzzles. There is legislation there that has to be on muzzles, that has to be on a lead at all times. And what I'd say, all them breeds should be notifiable to the Gardaí as soon as you get one. If you are allowed to get one, it should be notified that the guards know exactly where these and the dog wardens knows exactly where these uh, dangerous breeds are. But certainly those animals that's attacking children and that, that's, look, at that's a non-runner. They should, I think they should be banned. Yeah, it's, it's, it'd have to be looked at. Okay, well, this working group on dog control met on the uh, 26th of January. Um, when you meet again, um, how hopeful are you that the measures that are required to deal with this issue will be put in place? Well, I'm, as I say, a couple of meetings at the outset should be enough. Now, I'm unfortunately, I'm not on that. I thought I might be asked because I had a lot of input and a lot of work done on this. I haven't been asked or invited to the meeting. I'm not sure who's involved in it or who's on the, uh, the committee. But it's not rocket science in my mind to do what's needed for this. It's sit around the table. It's, I know there's three departments involved. Now there's a working group set up. That's another entity. I don't want all these things to be spread out. It should be pulled in under one department, I think, and the Minister for Agriculture should take control of this, have it all under one umbrella, and work from there, and the dog out in the local authorities where the enforcement has to happen. There's only 60 dog wardens in the country. It's totally unacceptable. There should be, in my just own view, I think there should be at least 300. Now, I'm not sure on exactly how many should be there, but I'd say in that region, anyway, I see 10 below in Cork County alone, and that could be a good example where they could uh, replicate their ideas and that. But all the county managers and all the local authority managers should be brought into a room and say, OK, this is what we want done, this is the way it should be done, and get them out there and get, put resources in place to do it. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That's uh, Kevin Comiskey. Thanks very much uh, for joining us, Kevin. Kevin is chair of the IFA National Sheep Committee. Now, we're going to North Louth for our next story, and uh, Councillor Antoine Waters uh, put a posting up on his Facebook page recently with some... Uh, Pretty bad photographs of 18 black sacks of waste, some of them being scattered uh, all over the place. It made uh, very uh, unsightly viewing and it's reflective of the fact that some people just won't pay to get rid of their waste. They believe that certain uh, public lands should be used as dumping sites. Antoine joins me on the line right now. First of all, uh, Antoine, I think this happened on the turf road in Omeed. How bad was the dumping? Good morning, Ken, and thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, look, unfortunately, more uh, more bad news and more dumping, um, another negative. Uh, but um, look, it's one of one of our uh, famous beauty spots in the North Loud area, up over the Turf Mountain, round Eden Tubber, up by the the Mast. You know, it's 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 a lovely part of the country, and unfortunately, over the last number of years, I've been on a lot, giving out about people who 
are taken, you know, taking it for granted and dumping their waste up there. Like over the one, uh, it happened last Thursday night into Friday morning. It was quite a bad dumping and all black household waste. And um, now lucky enough, good work by the Little Wardens where they have got a name and, and the fine is tissue. But I think we really need to look at the whole cost of it as well. Like a €150 fine when it's paid, it's going to cost a lot more than €150 to clean up this waste. And that's the problem I see. Um, we need to look at how how to proper like properly detail deal with the cost of it. Ken, you know that's the problem. Well, are you saying then that the fine should be, we'll say, a thousand euro, and that might scare or discourage people from, uh, if you like, dumping their waste on open land? Yeah, we we really have to look at it now. I know there is new um, code of practice coming in for for monitoring and CCTV rollout and all for in the early part of this year, and I will be looking for an update at the next council meeting to see if Loud County Council can look to implement that. But the fines and the amount that people are paying, I feel is still low. Like if you take into account how much it would cost to deal to remove that, I think we need to look at how much is it per kg of waste that's dumped. Or we need to look at it a better way of dealing with it because it's not covering the cost to remove it at all. So what you're saying is uh, the more you dump, the more you should be fined rather than one flat fee. I agree, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what I, my rack. And look, yes, you're going to have to look at, at, at the, how this will work and the practicalities of it. But at the minute, I feel the, uh, the fines are too low. And people, like, if the dumping's happening countrywide every day of the week and it's not good enough. And at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's eating up our resources. The resources are stretched enough as it is. And we they could be put to a better use than up. Uh, lifting that rubbish on the mountain on one of our mountainsides, you know. Yeah, isn't one of the problems that's emerged from the privatisation of dealing with waste and rubbish is that private operators simply charge too much and people think they can get away with this if they dump their their waste on uh, open land uh, at no fee. And that if we say, for example, if Loud County Council provided a dump where the, uh, the fees to dump rubbish was significantly less less than what a private operator is charging, they might get better results in the long run. Do you think that would work? Well, well, thinking of that, like we have great services in the recycling centres where you can get rid of a black bag of rubbish for maybe a five or six euro. I know often after Christmas I will be out with all the cardboard recycling and all, and it's very easy to get rid of a black bag of rubbish in there as well. So I, I think it's people, it's also probably the man with a van, I think could be a play here as well, where there is people collecting it, as you say, for a small fee. These obviously aren't registered um, people who can do it, service providers, but that's the problem as well, that they are going around and collecting this waste and it's not been dealt with properly, it's just been thrown up on the side of the mountain in our public land, as, as we said already. So I feel we really do need to give it a shake-up because it isn't a problem that's going away. Every so often it's raising its head again. One can be uh, a lot worse than the other. Obviously all the time there would be one or two bags, but not as big as what happened over the last couple of days. So I really think a review of the whole process is needed and that's where we need to go with it. Without mentioning any names, um, according to your Facebook post, uh, the name and address of the uh, the person allegedly responsible uh, is being dealt with. So what advice would you have for members of the public who spot people dumping rubbish on land where it shouldn't be dumped uh, in order to, if you like, deal with this ongoing problem? Well, look, 
that's how, the only way we're going to try and deal with this is, is the public's buy into this and raising awareness of it. But if you see someone dumping it, it's a, a call straight. I would call the Guardi and I would also call the council because that's how you catch these people in the act. It's brazen. These don't care about our area. We love the area we live in, but some people don't care about it as much as we do. And I would be calling for anyone who sees anything that straight away, the first call to the Guardian and followed by the council to get the letter wardens out to see if there's any evidence or catch the person in the act. We all see the social media videos of people who are caught in the act dumping. Some of them are very brazen, but it's something that we all need to take a wee bit of responsibility for and try and stamp it out, you know. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. That's uh, Councillor Antoine Waters of Sinn Féin, who uh, was talking there about the uh, dumping of waste on the Turf Road in Omid. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Irish Nature, I hope I've pronounced that word correctly, and Hill Farmers Association have today published its forestry policy. The policy is they maintain a blueprint on how Ireland can overcome the current impasse in afforestation while achieving the three aims of increased carbon sequestration, greater biodiversity and improved qu- water quality. One thing is certain, Ireland apparently needs more forests because they make a huge uh, contribution to the environment. Uh, to discuss this, I'm joined on the line right now by Patsy Daly, uh, who is a council rep for Leitrim and West Cavan. You talk about the current impasse in afforestation. Could you just explain uh, to listeners, particularly urban listeners in the Loudmead area who perhaps are not well up on forestation, what the current impasse is? OK, can I, can I just uh, maybe start by a small correction? It's Natura, Irish Natura. And my, my apologies, my apologies. No you, problem. You, 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 can, and, you can shoot me at dawn for that one. <laughs> it's not that bad. And uh, we, we, um, we focus on sheep farmers. We're relatively new, but we focus on sheep and sucklers. Um, and maybe to take you back, um, rather than talking about the impasse, Let's talk about what the, the problems are, and uh, then we'll talk about what our solutions are to those problems. Um, you know, we, you, ha- you have this um, situation with uh, culture and uh, the investment company, Gresham House. That's not the real problem. That's a symptom of what I would say is the disease, which is Irish afforestation policy. Um, <coughs> Irish uh, forestry policy is focused on investors. Uh, Irish taxpayers' money is given to these investors, mainly foreign, to buy up land to outbid young farmers uh, and other farmers who are trying to um, increase the size of their holdings and then planted with Sitka spruce. And it's done because they buy the land, it's done on a whole farm basis. So every farm that's planted is a family less. It's a family gone from the rural community with all the resulting consequences in terms of the schools, the shops, the pubs, the churches, sports clubs, etc. And for people in rural Ireland, none of us benefit um, from this model of afforestation. Farmers don't benefit, as I've just said, they're, they're outbid for, for land. Rural communities don't benefit because, as I said, it results in depopulation. And and this is the really baffling part of it all. The environment doesn't benefit. Instead, what you get is you get water pollution from Sitka spruce. You get biodiversity killed by Sitka spruce. And you get little or no carbon sequestration in the long run. <coughs> and we have to ask, 
you know, where's the Green Party and all this? Where is Minister Pippa Hackett, who is in charge of land use and forestry? What she's doing currently is she's encouraging and funding the planting of Sitka spruce on peatland and carbon-rich soils, and like I said, causing pollution rather than sorting it out. And what we want to do is we want to take a completely different approach to uh, forestry. We want to get rid of the investors, get rid of Sitka spruce, instead focus on encouraging and funding farmers to plant a portion of their lands and thereby remain in the local community and plant them with native woodlands. Native woodlands improve water quality, they improve air quality, they increase biodiversity and they have good, in the long term, they have far better uh, carbon sequestration. Well, that all sounds like common sense, but have you uh, have you spoken to Pippa Hackett and uh, the people in the Green Party who would like to convince one or two people that they know more than you? Well, we we have um, we have an upcoming meeting uh, in um, in Dublin with uh, the public representatives, and we hope that the Green Party will come along to that and Pippa Hackett. And we have sought a, a meeting with the uh, minister. McConnell and Minister Hackett. But we've given them a copy of uh, our policy so, uh, you know, they know what we're talking about. And you mentioned there that it's common sense. <coughs> and when uh, you see that a common sense approach isn't being taken, you have to start to worry. And uh, for us in INHSA, the only conclusion that we can come to and the only conclusion that I can come to is this is a farmer call. Plain and simple. Uh, And this is ongoing farmer, uh, sorry, forestry policy. It's not something that has been dreamt up in the last couple of weeks or whatever. The the, uh, culture issue is just a manifestation of the problem of providing funding to investors. And the result of that, as I said, this government of Fine Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party are depopulating large parts of Ireland and replacing it with Sitka Spruce. It doesn't make sense. And what's the, if you like, what's the practice in other countries in Europe? I mean, is Sitka spruce being planted uh, in in accordance with the way the Greens think, or uh, are the policies that you're advocating being applied elsewhere? If if you take, for example, Norway, which has a far more enlightened approach to afforestation and much higher levels, obviously, of afforestation, they have banned Sitka spruce. They've recognised it for what it is. It's a uh, it's an alien species. It's not native to Ireland. It's not native to Europe. It comes from Western Canada. It grows very well here, but that is a, a, a worrying thing in any of these things. All weeds grow well. Uh, rhododendron on the mountains in Kerry grows very well. Japanese knotweed grows very well. So the fact that it grows very well is is not a positive. Uh, when you look at it from an environmental perspective. One would have thought that the Greens would be aware of all this. Uh, I'm a little bit baffled as to why they don't see it your way. Do you think something else is going on? I I do. Like I said, this is about uh, the Greens in particular, it appears to me, would like to see rural areas depopulated. Uh, You don't have the problem of rural cars then and so forth. They want to see... uh, large parts of Ireland, the western seaboard and more all mountainous areas are, are 
uh, marginal land areas planted. Okay, well, hopefully the Green Party might uh, get back to us and give their explanation as to why they're in favour of Sitka spruce trees, as you say. But unfortunately, yeah, we'll have to leave it there. And I should stress you're with the Irish Natura Natura and Hill Farmers Association. That's uh, Patsy Daly there on the line uh, from uh, Leitrim. I do believe. And that just about wraps it up for today. Michael Reed will be back with you tomorrow. I want to thank Chris Murray, who was on sound. Maggie Maguire produced. Sinead Brazel is next. I'm Ken Murray, and I'll talk to you again sometime soon. Until the next time, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.